The Ringers Nora Princiati and Nathan Hubbard are on a journey breaking down every single Taylor Swift album. For all you Swifties out there, this is the podcast for you. From her most famous moments to her most obscure references, every single album, Taylor Swift has it all. Check it out on the Ringer Dish feed, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, the Lord of Letterboxd, it's Sean Fennessy! Oh no, what a disappointment for all the Greenwald heads out there. Jeez. Oh, Andy's right, on vacation. That means I get to let it rip with my man, Sean. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for joining me today. We've got a fun show. We're going to do a little bit of headlines at the top, which is essentially just... Um, this Obi-Wan news that came out today, uh, the casting news, and they started production. I want to chat a little bit about that. I wanted to find out what Sean's been watching because, you know, it's for as much time as Sean and I, I guess, virtually spend together, but in, in the course of our lives to spend together. I think I feel like we watch different TV from sometimes, like when we're when we're home alone and we're just, we do different things with our time. And it's always kind of fascinating to find out how Sean's been, been spending his time on a screen. And I also wanted to kind of have a little bit of our I'm sure this will be an extension of that. Our semi-regular conversation about the collapsing boundaries between movies and TV. We did a crossover episode a while back with The Big Picture, me and Andy and Sean and Amanda, where we talked about the sort of the merging of the businesses, business side of things and how that would affect the art forms. And I think it would be cool to catch up on that. And then I just want to talk about Falcon Winter Soldier because I think that show rules. So we're going to do all of those things on The Watch today. Sean, how are you? Chris, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm happy to be on my first and forever favorite podcast. I'm, I've always been kind of a B-grade Greenwald, so I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to fill his shoes today. I've been watching a lot of stuff. I yeah. don't think I've been watching very many of the things that you guys have been watching, though. I listened to your conversation about the Bureau, which is sweeping the nation of upper-middle-class podcasters. <laughs> Every single one I've ever met seems to be watching the Bureau. Uh, I'm not there, but I am, I'm, I'm, I'm watching some stuff. I'm definitely going to be watching Obi-Wan Kenobi, though. Yo, I'm going to watch the hell out of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Let's talk a little bit about this because Disney just won't let us sleep. They put out another like a big casting announcement with the sort of the the headshots of all the folks in this uh, show, some of whom we knew were going to be in there, some of whom we guessed would be in there because they have had roles in previous Star Wars films and, and it had sort of had a, a real connection to the Obi-Wan character. And then some people who were surprises, like the first Safdie in space, your boy Benny Safdie is going to be in this movie. Do you very, think very he's going to play the like the Phoebe Waller Bridge like voice of the robot or alien, or do you think he's going to get to be like grimy seventies safty in 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 on Tatooine? Uh, wait, so you're saying Benny is not playing Obi Wan Kenobi? <laughs> Did I misread that? <laughs> Fuck. Uh, no, I don't know. I saw some speculation that maybe he would be uh, picking up the Watto train, you know, <laughs> yeah. voicing Watto here potentially. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure. What, I'm just excited that the world is going to get a chance to see Benny. Benny is a great actor. He's great in good time. Yeah. Um, obviously, he's one of the co-writers, co-directors, co-thinkers of the Uncut Gems expanded universe, which expanded my universe in a big way a couple of years ago. So I'm excited for him. I think it's great. And the rest of that cast seems cool. Are you ready for Hayden Christensen, comma, actor to be back in your life? I can't tell. I've been reading the tea leaves on this one a lot. Okay. So... What people may or may not know is like, so the Obi-Wan is, the, this show has had a couple of iterations so far, at least like, it, you know, it, it's been in the works for a while. And initially, Hossein Omini, who had written Drive, 
and worked on McMafia and uh, a John Le Carre adaptation with Ewan McGregor called Our Kind of Traitor. He was writing the series. And they essentially scrapped those scripts. I don't know whether or not they're going to be keeping any of the material that he developed, but they brought in uh, Joby Harold, who has did, I think is kind of like got a, a pretty up and down, but very prolific and popular career. Uh, he worked on stuff like Underground, the show Underground, a show called Spinning Out, which came out a little while ago with January Jones. And he also did a movie called Awake with Hayden Christensen. And I was like, did they bring in this dude just to beef up the mm. Anakin the Christian stuff. Whisperer. Yeah, yeah, the Christians and Whisperer, Whisperer. He also wrote Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead, which is, or co-wrote it, which is coming out, obviously, pretty soon. Yeah, um, let's go through this cast, because it's obviously Ewan McGregor reprising his role as Obi-Wan, and Hayden Christian reprising his role as Anakin Skywalker. Then you get Sean's boy, Joel Edgerton. Hasn't aged a day since the prequels, and is coming back as Uncle Owen. Why is he my boy? Do you want to share your Joel Edgerton take? That his that um, his his wins above replacement is very flat, right? Yeah. Who, who was I saying he he should be replaced by in every film? Was it Gyllenhaal? Probably. I think it was Gyllenhaal. Just put Gyllenhaal in every Joel Edgerton project, and it's a five star project. Edgerton is just he's in the three point three zone. Gyllenhaal you know? doing prisoners in Obi Wan is what I think you and I deserve. I don't know if it's what everybody <laughs> else deserves. Edgerton did his time though. He gets to be in this show. Indira Varma from uh, obviously Game of Thrones, yeah. O'Shea Jackson Jr. and Rome, O'Shea Jackson Jr., Rupert Friend, who is kind of like the sixth man of the year on Homeland every year. He's in this, you know, just a bunch of uh, Sung Kumail. Kang, Kumail and, and Gianni. So it's like, it's really like quite a cast. This is being described as officially as a special event series. So I thought we could kind of take this from here where okay. I don't know whether or not this is putting a new coat of paint on the same old thing, you know, like, is this just a limited series? Is this a mini series? Is, does it matter that they're calling it a special event series? Is it a special event because it features one of these totemic characters? If rumor has it, Sebastian Stan is being considered for a Luke Skywalker show or a Luke Skywalker character, uh, update. Like, could you see a special event series with what Luke did between X movie and X movie starring Sebastian Stan? Do you, do you think that this is a useful new addition to our TV movie lexicon or is this just a bunch of bullshit? Well, I wonder if it only indicates that that just means there's going to be four or five episodes. Mm -hmm. You know, we're in this interesting moment where eight or nine or ten episodes seems to be fairly standard. Miniseries seems to be six, six maybe yeah. seven or eight. And then what is less than that? What is a limited event? And, the, and does that ultimately mean that there is just one season and no more because they can't get Ewan McGregor to sign on for more than that? I don't know. Right. But it, it's a really fun cast. I think the changing of the writers is interesting too. And the fact that now Benny and Kumail and Sung Kang, who you know was Han in the Fast and the Furious films, is probably what he's best known for. Um, that these actors kind of indicate that the tone is going to be maybe a little lighter and what was where this was originally going? It seems like it's going to be a little more pop. And I wonder if the Mandalorian success and the way that they framed that show is pushing this show in another direction. What kind of a show do you think it's going to be? I know the show I want it to be. I think I want it to be something which I think has been kicked around a little bit is that it is, it is essentially a Jedi detective show. Hmm. And that there is, you know, I, I think that what Obi-Wan is doing in the desert and what mystical things happen to him out there that lead him to a new hope and being, you know, the age he is in Alicinus in it when Alicinus's version of that is is like I, I'm curious about that sort of Rogue One building the scaffolding to getting to New Hope stuff. But at its best, like when Mandalorian was really just like, yes, there is a Yoda, but like we're doing these kinds of like cool contained samurai adventures on a week-to-week -week basis that are also kind of stretched out with the Werner Herzog plot. Like, I thought that was like the best of this kind of storytelling for as much as I loved Mandalorian season two. So I'm hoping that they let Deborah Chow cook and that they have good one-liners from these this great cast of characters. And that then like, even though there's an enormous amount of pressure to kind of give people this sort of fan service with such a beloved character, that they still tell like a really compelling genre story whichever genre they choose so it says filming begins in april yeah so when are we going to get this show i think when a year after that so one year from tomorrow yeah because i think that given the fact that we have bad batch and then presumably mandalorian season three and the 
Boba spinoff, the Book of Boba Fett, are both slated for later in the year, I think. Is that right after Book of Boba Fett then? Is that when we should expect it as the next Star Wars series? I would imagine that, that it, 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 the, the, the question that I think we haven't had to answer yet is what happens when Disney has Marvel and Star Wars firing on all cylinders? And do they care if they have two big shows on at once? Because they haven't done that yet. They've just been running our lives and we'll have like a little bit of a break when um, Falcon Winter Soldier ends and then they'll have Loki later in the summer. But we haven't had them doing the multi-night or week programming yet okay well i mean i'm i'm fired up for it i i don't mind the idea of watching a marvel show and then watching a star wars show i it's kind of like the new musty tv in a lot of ways it's that sort of like you need to be there for the eight o'clock version of friends and you need to be there for the 9 p.m version of seinfeld that's sort of what these Mm -hmm. shows are now they are like center of the culture water cooler you don't want to miss this because there's a reveal in every episode of some kind, just like you don't want to not get the reference to the joke from the sitcom in the 90s. So I, I'm, I'm cool with it. I'm sure invariably we're going to get exhausted by all this stuff, but it doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon. You talk about these shows in relation to being shows and to being TV. So let's let's jump into our, our usual conversation about movies versus TV, but not like adversarially but like movies and tv and what one thing is and what the other thing is and then we'll get to what you some of the stuff you've been watching we were now like from mandalorian to wandavision to falcon and winter soldier and we'll talk about falcon and winter soldier later have you felt like those shows are now occupying the space that maybe we devoted to big movies in the absence of big movies with the exception of like snyder cut and a couple of other things you know we're we're, we're almost we're right when summer movies should be starting, right? Coming up soon. The usual summer movie season starts. And we're going to start to get those films soon. But I feel like the participation in that people have had in WandaVision, in Mandalorian, and in Falcon and Winter Soldier has kind of replaced the multiplex experience. Does that track for you? It does somewhat. I think I'm always a little bit myopic about the movie experience. I'm still so passionate about it that I still think it matters more. But I will say, just anecdotally, we did this Snyder Cut pod on the big picture, mm-hmm. right? We talked for four hours about this movie. And a lot of people listened to that episode. Yeah. And it's because that movie was an event. And even though it had the length of a miniseries, it was treated like a movie and marketed like a movie. And I still think that the same when it comes to the sort of like media surrounding a movie is still true of movies, which is nothing pops like a big movie. You know, there's nothing that is bigger. Now, The Mandalorian felt like it was huge in the second season, and WandaVision felt like it was huge. But I wonder if that would still have been true if Black Widow was also coming out at the same time. And we just don't know. And we're probably going to find out in a few months. You know, or once- if people could have seen the little things, you know, in the theatrical experience the way they should have, you know? But the thing is, is like that movie obviously is not good. And in a way, it was very well served to give to be given to people at home in January because then they could watch it with little kind of like emotional or financial investment. The eventized movie thing is different. And like this week, we get Godzilla versus Kong right on HBO Max. Mm -hmm. That's a movie that was literally designed to be put into movie theaters. It is a true event spectacle film. I was lucky to see it at a drive in. So I did get that some of that experience, but most people are not. And I don't know if it's going to have the same boom that Falcon and Winter Soldier episode three is. I just, I, it's hard to say. Um, I think the thing that's challenging is like, what other TV shows are booming that are not the Marvel and Star Wars stuff? Anything? No, we've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks because, you know, whenever we take listener questions, a lot of them are about what's the, you know, what's the water cooler show right now? And I think that there's just a hundred different water coolers. So, you know, it, when you look at, I mean, just look at like the breadth of podcasts that we make at our company about television in general. And you have TV concierge, which I think really ably covers like a lot of stuff that's on Netflix, a lot of reality stuff. We have the Ringerverse that's going deep into a lot of these, obviously the Marvel and the Star Wars shows and the Disney, the DC movies, but also things like Invincible, which we might talk about in a little bit here on Amazon. And then there's the kind of ephemera, which is like every couple months HBO still has like a pretty noteworthy show on that people are checking out even if it is in Swedish and you know like I think that there's just like this dispersion of the viewing habits rather than like well we are all watching this and that's that's fine I think it's it's just wild when you look at the Netflix top 10 you and I often joke about this to each other and you like look at the Netflix top 10 and it's like Two shows which are clearly blockbusters but don't feel like they are being talked about in like a wide way iCarly reruns and a Mark Wahlberg movie from like 
2004, you know? And you're just like, this is what people are actually watching out here, man. Yeah. Uh, is it? Like, I, I, I don't... Who are people? I you don't know, know. Who are the who are the people? Obviously, <laughs> Netflix has the most subscribers out of any of these services, and they're worldwide, and they have this incredible reach. But we've talked about this before. It feels like a lot of their content is somewhere between network television and basic cable in terms of the way that they're programming. Mm-hmm. And so, a lot of the things that you see on basic cable are not just. I don't just mean like the HGTV style show or the network reality show or the CBS drama, which a lot of that stuff tends to look like, but also the kind of like second tier theatrically released movie that then gets an audience on TNT or TBS, like Shooter, the Mm -hmm. Mark Wahlberg movie. That was a movie that like did fine in movie theaters. And then I felt like every time I turned on my TV, (laughs) Shooter was on. It was the end of Shooter right before the NBA on TNT started. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And, And now there are versions of that on Netflix. And mm-hmm. that's like, that's wallpaper TV. That's people come home, they fire up Netflix, they press play on whatever served up to them and they let it rock. That's not the same as the conversation that you and Andy have been having for 10 right. years, which is like, what is the kind of cultural, intellectual, industry-driven focus of the world of television? And that, I don't really know, that is what feels like has been scooped out. Because if it's been replaced by Star Wars and Marvel, well, we were already doing that in the movie world. We were mm-hmm. already having that conversation for 10 years. It's just kind of slightly shifted structure and format. But what is the, forget about the Breaking Bad, like what even is like the Rome? You know, what is the, this is really solid and I know a one and a half million people are watching it on HBO every week. I, I can't wrap my head around what no, that No, I mean, is. I think that The Undoing was the last thing that, that we had that was like that, that appealed beyond franchise IP. I think Mayor of Easttown has a lot of potential to be that. But you're right. There has not been a big, flashy drama. And it seems like it's been even longer since there's been season three of one of those shows. Mm. All of the ones that we would even think of are, you know, it's like sharp objects, the undoing, like these sort of limited mysteries that like maybe draw people in, but aren't like, how are they, how are they evolving this show in season two, three, four, and five? That's, that's really been, that's almost a forgotten art form is to plot out shows like that. I was, I was very hopeful that I think, you know, it's IP, but I was hopeful that Watchmen was going to be that. And obviously it doesn't sound like they're going to make any more of it. What do you think that's about? Is it about the buy-in of the showrunner, the talent? Is it about the streamers only wanting a certain amount of time for these series? Like what, what, what's driving that? I think there's a lot of different factors. I think there's so many shows being made now that it's harder than ever for any one show to break out. I do think that there's something to the idea that it's more attractive for some reason for a Netflix or an Amazon to sell a new show than it is to tell you to come back for season two or three of something with, you know, Amazon actually has a few exceptions to this rule. I would say The Boys and and the Jack Ryan show are both examples of almost old school television, but like they're pretty hard genre shows. Like they're not dramas. They're not like Mad Men or Breaking Bad or The Wire or Deadwood or anything like that. So I think that there's something about the attraction of the new. And since you're constantly trying to convert new subscribers, I think it's probably easier to do so if you're like, check out all this new shit we have coming this year than it is try and catch up with Stranger Things in its fourth season or try and catch up with Bridgerton in its second season or try and catch up with Marvelous Mrs. Maisel in its fourth season. Doesn't that seem like arguably the most radical thing that has happened in TV in the last 10 years? Yes. The idea that like we don't need to buy in for, forget about 10 seasons. The idea that most shows can't even make it to a third season. And I know you guys have talked about that a little bit, but this constant regeneration this new this the sense that you have to basically be pitching a new concept we even have it in very small measure here at the ringer where it's like it's either you have something that is deeply established or getting something on its feet it has a big challenge and so how do you make it you know should it be ongoing and long running should it be a limited series should it, it it's very hard to know like what's going to get people's attention because the war is bigger than ever and that stratification obviously is part of what's driving this like lack of a middle mm-hmm. and I don't uh, personally don't necessarily even know why I care. Like, I don't know why I care about the middle and why, like the idea of consensus and the idea of many people being invested in one thing. But for, I think I was trained generationally to think it mattered to think that there had to be Michael Jordan and friends mm-hmm. and th- this sort of like this understood 
Yeah. Okay, computer and Stankonia. You know, we all have to (laughs) care about this shit. Yeah. I think that there's also something a little bit melancholy about the ephemeral nature of the limited series. I think there's something kind of like everything is just a fleeting memory rather than something to look forward to. I mean, for as maybe poorly as Game of Thrones ended, you think about it. We just did the 2016 movie draft and I was like, I can't remember which Game of Thrones season that was. And I looked back and I was like, holy shit, that was Battle of the Bastards and Winds of Winter. That shit had the whole block on lock. Like we were just out of our minds and we were out of our minds because we had spent four years getting up to this point or five years getting up to this point. And we knew that we had more to come. Like it was only setting up something more to come. And, you know, I wonder whether or not if they could have done it over again, you know, would they have done Big Little Lies as like a three season show, but maybe not had two or three of the big stars in it, but plotted it out a little bit more coherently over the course of a few seasons rather than be like, ah, we're not done with it yet. Let's bring Meryl Streep in to like argue for custody rights. Well, how much of this is about the pandemic and the idea that there are a lot of shows that are potentially coming in the next five years, but that we haven't had a chance to even consider thinking about? Because they've been pushed. You know, there is going to be a Lord of the Rings series. Now, that has a lot in common with Star Wars, but it probably has more in common with Thrones and the way they're going to tell that story. And they're going to probably build it all up over time. It's mm-hmm. a huge investment. The idea of just doing 12 episodes and then walking away from that seems unlikely to me, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that this is the first in like what will be many Lord of the Rings shows. Right. So yeah. maybe a year from now, it doesn't feel like it's just a series of one-offs happening left and right. And the only thing that is consistent is the fact that there's an MCU story happening on television at one time. I mean, as far as how it affects movies, I don't know, man. Movies are in a bad spot. Yeah. They're in a really bad spot. We're about to have an Oscars in four weeks and no one's going to watch it. It's going to have 10 million viewers, which is going to be the worst Oscars ratings ever by far. Right. And one quarter of the audience that checked out the Oscars when Avatar won uh, 12 years ago. So that's not great. Um, there's a lot of confusion about what's really going to reopen theaters in terms of movies. That Black Widow announcement last week was pretty big deal. Mm -hmm. And I think Hollywood spent the last 15 years building up this IP engine only to find that it might be more effective on television. (laughs) And so now if the center of the movie universe is not that IP engine, what is it? Or if Um, the corporations that own those movie studios also have a piece of a streamer or own a streamer to them it doesn't make a difference whether or not you're seeing it in a regal cinema or an arc light or an amc or watching it on hbo max or paramount plus right yeah the the thing is the people who are critical even of some of the conversations i found that amanda and i were having over and over again in the first three months of the pandemic about like you know the value of movie theaters and how everything's moving to streaming and yada yada um the the big coin is still with a global blockbuster. Yeah. The, the, the Avengers Endgame is still the biggest, best way to make money. Fa- Fast and the Furious, No Time to Die. These movies still matter more significantly to the, to the ledgers of the corporations than anything. And frankly, they drive the biggest kind of cultural connective wave. The Endgame wave, people ha- having an experience with that movie was bigger than anything that could happen on TV short of the Super Bowl. But... It's hard to make those movies. It's hard to get them to happen. It's hard to get all the people involved in them to agree to do them. And the movie theater industry is in a very difficult position. It's kind of unclear which ones are going to come back strong and which ones are in a a permanent state of disrepair. So we'll have to see. The story of like the quality of movies has been dwindling pretty significantly over the last 20 years, at least through the eyes of the studio system. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you because I know that you've attended, quote unquote, some some film festivals over the last couple of months virtually. And um, one thing that I obviously miss, and we talk about it a lot when we do our, our movie drafts, is like the social aspect of going to the movies. Not only the communal aspect, but usually, you know, even if you go to a movie alone, which is a wonderful tradition, you still kind of like feel the vibes in the room. You know what I mean? You can still tell that like the seven other people you saw that 11 a.m. Sunday matinee with liked or didn't like the movie or walked out as soon as it was over or stuck stuck around and like lapped up the credits. And then there's, of course, the aspect of like, if you go to a festival, if you're lucky enough to go to a festival and you get to like walk out and hear everybody kind of whispering and talking about it and getting on buses and getting in cars and talking about the the movies or if you, you know, just see a movie commercially and you go and have dinner afterwards and chop it up. 
how much have you missed that as you've been watching these screener links that expire in eight hours and then and then maybe you're seeing some chatter on Twitter, but for the most part, these are like very private, you know, solo experiences for you. Well, on the one hand, I think it's a real test of the quality of a film, its ability to hold my interest. You know, going to a movie in a movie theater is po- possibly the most private public experience you can have. Yeah. Because everyone has to shut up and look at the screen. And if you don't do that, you're probably going to get scolded. And so you have to you have to focus in a we're really we're way. really showing our angelino right now because <laughs> <laughs> well that may not be true in 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 every city yeah. or in every theater but for the most part it's true now if you go to see a horror movie or a comedy that's totally different but for the most part if you go see a drama on a friday night in los angeles it's like going to church mm-hmm. you know it's a, it's a very special and spiritual experience especially for me i love it i love to get a ton of candy i love to go with my friends but i i like going alone too and so not having that obviously like you're forced to pay attention to the movie. And if you're fine, you're not paying attention to the movie when you have the screener link. It's a pretty good sign that either you got something going on at home you need to take care of, or you're just not that interested and you you can't really fake it. So I felt that a lot. The festival thing is a little bit different because festival going is all about taking a chance on something you're not sure about. And even more so when you're weirdo like me and want to watch five movies in a day. And sometimes those days are incredible and full of discovery. And sometimes it's five consecutive slogs. And you want to be decent to the people who've made the film and the people who organize the festival and give everything a fair shake. But you also, if you, if you really don't like something, you can just bail. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something I don't usually do at film festivals. I no, don't really I, walk I, out of films. It's that really awful feeling of like, do you think it's okay if we leave? Yeah, yeah. The, the filmmaker is here. But when you're at home, you're like, Click. I'm done yeah. with that. I don't want to watch that I'm anymore. Watching this Giannis. really isn't working yeah. for me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Honestly, yes. And invariably, I turn to sports. Um, I would say, generally speaking, these festivals have done an amazing job. Yeah. I thought Sundance was incredibly well run this year. And kudos to everybody who works at that festival because it's hard to do it virtually. It's hard to get everybody signed up. It's hard to create access. You know, it's hard to create this sense of conversation among some of these films. And also, the slates were smaller. And in some cases, less quote unquote noisy because many distributors did not necessarily see a reason to be sharing their films virtually. They will, the reason that distributors sh- bring their movies to festivals is to gin up conversation and it's hard to get conversation. So I take my hat off to everybody who's working on that stuff. I was just a juror on the South by Southwest uh, documentary competition film festival, which was a really cool experience, but I didn't have enough time yeah. to watch most of the other movies I wanted to see. At South by there well, was that spring training. I mean, I know it's, it's, it, I got a lot of baseball to watch. I got a lot of Falcon and winter soldier, but like there were probably 10 movies I wanted to see there that I didn't get a chance to. And you always feel that way coming out of a film festival, sure. but I'll be curious to see about going back. I have a ticket to tell your ride mm-hmm. in September. Tell your ride is one of the coolest places on earth for a film festival. I went for the first time a couple of years ago. I had an absolutely magical experience. I was there by myself and I saw a ton of movies, ton of great movies. Everybody who's there is just intoxicated sure. with the feeling. Of you have to really work to get there. So yes. when you're there, it feels like this is this is hallowed ground, right? Yes. And that will be the first week of September. Will it be open? Will I be going? I, wish I, I don't know. You. Yeah, I genuinely don't know. But I'm looking forward to the possibility. Before we get to Falcon and Winter Soldier, which I think is is going to be a fun combo, I wanted to hear about some of the stuff that you've been watching. So, you know. Like you and I will have like half dozen dozen shows a year that we watch that we both watch, and then you will also have stuff you watch with your wife. A lot of docs on these services that I'm just like pass on. What have you been kind of really feeling right now? I imagine you're in a real doc zone right now. I am, Chris. You, it's funny. You're not watching a show that I'm watching, which is called Q Into the Storm. And I find that surprising because you've been sending me these <laughs> updates about QAnon for years now. We're just and trying to get our funding right, you know? Yeah, it's just all the all these postings. And I'm like, where did you find this? Chan? what is this? Um, I watched some of this last night. Our buddy David Tillman is one of the editors on this, on this show, so or this doc. So I was very intrigued to check it out. And obviously, yeah, as, as a big-time Reddit personality, I, QAnon is... <laughs> In some ways, the competition. Um, I so I, I I wouldn't say I took a chance on this. I I started watching it. It's on HBO Max. Uh, Cullen Hoback is the filmmaker behind it. And honestly, the single biggest reason I checked it out was because Adam McKay was an executive producer, mm-hmm. and I was kind of interested in what why he got involved in this story. And I watched the first episode, and I did not like it. 
It felt like a very, I don't want to say surface level, but it felt like a fairly rudimentary explanation, exploration of what the QAnon phenomenon was, of what this kind of world of subterranean internet denizens is like. And it didn't have a lot of information that I didn't already know. And I, I frankly am not a massive conspiracy person. And I was not very interested in the QAnon story in general, even though obviously it has great import in our world. But then you get to the end of the first episode and into the second episode and you meet the, the Watkinses, a father and a son who own and operate 8chan and who live in the Philippines and own a series of businesses. And you realize that that's why Cullen Hoback made this six-part documentary series is he got explicit access, not to people who are, believe in Q and want to talk about Q because that had a very kind of surface level engagement with the ideas. But it's these two guys who are very peculiar, who may or may not be Q, and that is consistently bandied about throughout the first four episodes of the series. And it's this very intimate portrait of these odd men mm-hmm. and the world that they are building for themselves. Kind of like in exile, they've created a little bit of a defiant, countercultural persona for themselves. And I would say the film is non judgmental but critical and I'm, I'm honestly I can't think of very many things that are like it it feels it feels a little closer to Errol Morris who's one of my favorite filmmakers than your typical run-of-the-mill like cable streamer doc like explainer. cobbling together a magazine feature yeah yeah exactly yeah, I, yeah. I think a lot of these things tend to sound just like podcasts where you don't even really need the visuals you don't have to see anything you're just listening to somebody explain what's going on here and and the Watkinses are they're, they're true characters. And, you know, Jim and Ron, they, they need to be seen to be believed and to be understood. And they, I think they explain a lot about the kind of the culture that we live in that you can, is within touching distance right now online. So I've really enjoyed that. I think actually surprisingly so. I didn't, didn't expect to be gripped by it and where it's going to go. I don't know. There's only two more episodes left airing next Sunday. And I don't, I don't know if he's going to crack the case of Q or anything like that, if it can ever be cracked, but it's interesting. Would you say that we are experiencing, if not like a high watermark, but at least like an almost like embarrassment of documentary riches on these streaming services? Because I think that that's something that Andy and I neglect to talk about a lot, which is just, first of all, the sheer volume of stuff hitting services every week that is, you know, whether it's relatively straightforward true crime recreations with some crime scene photos and a lot of, a lot of VO or whether it is stuff that is really pushing the boundaries, whether it's coming from like, you know, really talented filmmakers or, you know, breaking new ground in like the, the topics that they're talking about. I, th- I feel like I hear you talk about this stuff a lot and I wonder whether you see it as like a real turning point for the, for the, the art form. I think the, the, the consumption is kind of endless. I mean, it's mm-hmm. only been in the last 15 years. Obviously Netflix did a ton to quote unquote normalize documentary consumption. I think mm-hmm. people just got much more comfortable with nonfiction as a format. And podcasts and, and Netflix in particular, I think, frankly, just changed the way that we consume. And nonfiction books, I suspect, have taken a big hit in the aftermath of that. But like, just look at this weekend. So in addition to two more episodes, two more hours of Q into the storm, Saturday night, HBO Max debuts Tina, the Tina mm-hmm. Turner documentary. And on Friday, Netflix debuts Seaspiracy, which is this it feels like a, a sister film to Blackfish in many ways about the the harvesting that happens in the seas and the dangers of plastic and sea. And, you know, regardless of how you feel about those films, they are about things that people are interested in that are easy to explain. It's easy to put Tina Turner at the top of your streamer and say, like, are you interested in River Deep Mountain High? If, if so, here's the whole story of the person who sang that song. And it is... It, it frankly goes back to the conversation we we're having about movies versus TV, right? Because movies have also been replaced by movies like these other kinds of movies. I don't, did you watch the college admission scandal movie? I didn't. So that was a fascinating That's the Rick example. Caruso, like all that stuff, like Lori Laughlin stuff. Yes. Okay. So I, do you know anything about it? I know just from reading the LA times and like keeping like vague tabs on it, but it didn't, I, I wasn't like obsessed with it or anything. So it's a quasi-documentary, I would say. It's directed by Chris Smith, who's a really talented guy who made American Movie. He made Jim and Andy, the Andy Kaufman, mm-hmm. Jim Carrey documentary. Um, and it's half traditional 
into camera interview documentary and half Matthew Modine as the guy in reenactments <laughs> as the, 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 you know, the scam artist college coach who orchestrated this entire scandal. And it, it's, it's honestly unlike anything I've ever seen. Now I've seen a lot of documentaries that have reenactments, but very few, I, I couldn't think of one honestly that had an, a genuinely famous person giving a true performance in this movie for about 40 to 50 minutes of the movie. And frankly, a very good performance. Matthew Modine's really good in this movie and using the two different filmmaking styles and blending them together. And it's not, you know, it's not Citizen Kane, but it, it is a very effective way of telling this story that a lot of people know at least, you know, the more salacious details about, but maybe not the mechanical aspects of how this actually came to be. Yeah. And it feels a little bit like a paradigm shift. It feels a little bit like a we can make movies in a new way approach. Now, I'm sure people will say there are other examples of this over the years, and there have been a lot of different versions of it, but I couldn't think of one that was quite like this film. And it seemed to be providing, it seemed to be satiating like two different distinct audiences. The like podcast slash true crime, what really happened in this story audience. And then the like lifetime like B movie, like salacious. Yeah. Yeah. And fuse them together in a clever way. And I was like, it occurred to me that it's not going to be the last time we see something like that. Do you think that your tolerance or level of curiosity or level of patience is differently different with documentaries than it is for, say, an hour-long drama? Like, oh, do you think undoubtedly. That, so what do you think that's about? Do you think it's because you watch so many films, then when you turn on, like, Peaky Blinders, and if you're like, I got it, like, I don't, I don't need to do 50 hours of this? That's such a good prompt because I'd never finished Peaky Blinders. Right. I, I, I started it and I was like, I see why people like this. And then I just moved on with my life. <laughs> I feel I, like, I, I feel like you say that to me F- fairly. You're never like, this is shit. You guys think this is good, but it's not. You're just like, I don't have it. You know, I don't, I don't have the pitch count for this. Well, okay. So you joke with me all the time about Letterboxd, but you know, Letterboxd has a watch list functionality. I'm, I'm, and, I'm on Letterboxd. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Well, welcome to <laughs> welcome to my zone, Chris. Um, I, there are 1,538 movies on my Letterbox watch list. That's okay. as many movies as I could think of or I'm aware of that I want to watch in my life. And so... And I imagine you're well, always growing that list, right? It's always growing and it's, it's, it's two steps... It's one step forward, two steps back frequently. You know, sure. I think just when I think I've got a handle on the history of cinema, I learn about another filmmaker I've never heard of. However... When I'm bored, I don't go to check out Peaky Blinders Season 2, Episode 3, which is where I'm stuck. I go to that list, and I check out what Kiyoshi Kurosawa film is on uh, Criterion Channel, yeah. so I can check that out. So I don't, I don't know. I, I, it's hard for me to stick with something that I'm only middling on, unless, and here is where the Star Wars and Marvel thing sinks back, and if you want to use that as an opportunity to talk about Falcon, we can. I know that that's leading to something. Mm-hmm. That is connected to something bigger that I'm invested in. And part of it is that it's movies, but part of it is that I like that story. I like the Marvel story. I like the story that they're trying to tell over time. I don't like every movie, but I know I will see every movie. And so I feel like a sense of obligation colliding with a kind of pleasure that makes it more meaningful for me. Yeah. And then I guess it takes us back to the water cooler, right? Like, it's like, you know, that 90% of the ringer staff is probably chatting about this. You know, that if you see me or most of your friends will be like, yo, did you see that? That was pretty cool. Or that sucked or whatever. I was, I have one more question. Yeah, about about these docs though. So when I look back over the Steven Soderbergh read, seen, watched list of the year, one of the things that's really cool is sometimes you can tell, oh, he's screening these movies because he's working on something that's in this vein. Or, you know, especially with a lot of his like TV watching, he'll watch like a lot of Dateline or he'll watch like uh, like this Vanity, like Vanity Fair Confidential and like these various like true crime things. Sometimes you can see that he just gets obsessed with something. And I was curious whether or not the docs that you watch then lead you down a rabbit hole of like further kind of watching or scholarship about these topics. Or do you look at them as like these discrete films and then move on? It's like reading a book. Okay. It's, it's, it's honestly not, it almost never triggers interest. My wife is very different. You know, my wife, I think would watch the college admission scandal doc and then read about it for three hours. Yeah. I actually am like, okay, I'm done. I got right. my meal about this and I can move on, which is, pretty different. I mean, to me, uh, I get more out of like watching the challenge over a series of years mm-hmm. um, than I do out of like diving more deeply into a film that 
uh, a documentary that is focused on a discrete topic. Like I, I probably will never read about QAnon again when I finish this series because I wasn't interested in the first place. I would, I think I'm just interested in the documentary format and what people are doing to kind of explode it and put it back together again, which is what it kind of feels like is happening right now in the space. Yeah. Um, that's also a topic that I feel like has been um, like almost a noise machine in the background of life of American life for t- 24 months now. So yeah, totally. Um, can I just quickly say, I thought invincible was very good. I know you don't watch animated things. I watched, I watched the first one. Yeah. What did you think? Um, I, I don't know that I am on Robert Kirkman's exact wavelength, mm-hmm. but I definitely was not bored by this show. And obviously, I don't want to spoil anything, but the end of the first episode is is quite a, quite gripping and definitely you want to start the second one immediately. Yes. Um, talk about why you liked it, though. Well, uh, I think me and you had a very similar experience. Me, you so and This is an animated show on Amazon Prime that's from a, uh, Robert Kirkman's comic Right. Comic, yes. He wrote a com- that comic circa 2003. And I think, I, you know, me and you were definitely in on The Walking Dead at first. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Greenwald was too. Yeah, I think we talked and, about it for a solid two seasons, like on and off, yeah. And I would guess that Invincible will probably have a similar uh, stay in my mind, which is to say that like for now, the approach of taking, uh, like taking a really extreme approach to an understood subgenre with a lot of clear tropes, mm-hmm is very effective for me. And the walking dead was simultaneously this like deconstruction of zombie stories and also a celebration of them. And also this like very violent over the top exploration of like what would really happen if you Mm -hmm. were in a circumstance like this and invincible while animated is basically the same thing for superhero stories. And frankly, even more so I think than the boys, the boys I like, but I think often is like quite pleased with itself. Invincible is, does not seem to be that very sincere show is raw and straightforward. Yeah. Um, And I like that about it so far. I'm only three episodes in, but you're right. I should, we shouldn't spoil anything for anybody who hasn't seen it, but the end of the first episode, I've not really seen anything like that in this genre before. So I thought it was worth checking out. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break and we come back. We'll talk about Falcon and Winter Soldier. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Okay, Sean, after the first episode of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I said, this show is good. And after the second episode, I would like to say, this show is good. And the emphasis is changed there. Capital G. Yeah, this show, it's a limited sort of uh, sample size. 
I, I would personally argue that the second episode of this show is the best piece of TV Marvel has made so far. Hmm. Um, well, what makes you say that? So, I don't think I... I think that's going to be unfair to do this, but I don't have another comparison point per se. So, I'm going to make some Falcon and Winter Soldier comparison... Uh, sorry, WandaVision comparisons. And I don't mean to do that to denigrate WandaVision as much as I am fascinated by the idea of what it would have felt like had Falcon and Winter Soldier gone first. And I think that inevitably what happens is some of what Falcon and Winter Soldier does feels like a little bit of a corrective, even if WandaVision is in some ways at least superficially more bold. I do think that one of the things I'm responding to in Falcon and the Winter Soldier is that they're just like, the subtext is the text. The, the things that this show is about, the characters are going to say it's about as they walk down the street and then confront another character that is the absolute manifestation of the theme of the show. And I think that um, I was pretty impressed by the way that Malcolm Spellman is making basically a buddy cop movie with half of his episode dedicated to ass kicking every time. And he is still squeezing in a lot of humor, like legitimately like pretty amusing banter with some pretty like, Oh shit moments of like, I did not expect Marvel to look in the mirror like this. And I didn't expect the superhero industrial complex necessarily to reckon with stuff like this. Now you could make the argument that this is exactly the problem with modern entertainment is that we're only capable of interfacing with our world through fantasy. And we could have that, that conversation if you want. But I found myself incredibly entertained by this. And not, not a little of that, a lot of that had to do with the appearance of Wyatt Russell in the very first scene. And we could talk about him, but before we do, uh, tell, me, tell me what you thought of the second episode of the show in general. I liked it more. I didn't like the first episode. I didn't like the first episode of WandaVision either. And I it took me a minute to kind of get on both shows' wavelength. Um, I found the like, look at me, we are an action show aspect of episode one to be a little bit off-putting and a little yeah. bit confusing. And it's actually, it seems now that that's not what the show is. You know, I think I, you guys might have even pointed this out on, on the pod, but keeping Bucky and Sam separate for the first episode was a weird choice. Yeah, but that and, would only been 12 minutes of a movie, you right. know, and they extended it out. But as soon as they got together... I was like, oh, okay, lethal weapon, 48 <laughs> yeah. hours. Like, great. They're, they have great chemistry together. It, it provides a lot more opportunities for humor. I think that the themes and the ideas, as I said to you last night, are very like capital T, capital P term paper, where it's like, this America leaves its soldiers behind. You know, yeah. like, race in our country is undis- under-discussed. This country and, is built on black sacrifice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's very clear that that's that the show is doing that. And frankly, that's a, that's good. That's good. It's actually well <laughs> done and interesting and I'm enjoying it so far. I think it helps that they have uh as is frequently becoming the case with Marvel properties, like everyone who's in the show is good at acting. And that's not always the case I find with a lot of TV shows. I think one of the reasons I struggle with TV is sometimes you'll see somebody who shows up on a show and I'm like it, is this this person's first job? Like, I don't understand why they're not up to the, up to the task. Yeah. But Sebastian Stan is like, he's a professional TV actor. I mean, that's right. actually where he comes from and what he's good at. Um, and Anthony Mackie is a, is a professional movie star. So these guys are really qualified to do this. Um, and I think that there's like small things. I think the Isaiah Bradley scene in particular with Carl Lumley was uniquely well handled and thoughtful for a show like this while also still being a superhero story. So I'm having fun with it. I like it. I it's, I don't think it's going to be my favorite show of all time, but I was very dubious at first and now I'm fully down to watch the whole thing. Yeah. I think that I didn't appreciate how static WandaVision was in terms of its location and more so its sense of movement, which makes sense because she has trapped these people. So you, you wouldn't really feel like there was a lot of, um, not action, but like I just mean like moving through space, like and especially even on a narrative level of it feeling like the story is going somewhere. I also thought that for all of its homages to sitcoms, WandaVision was oddly not funny. It was paying homage to shows that were incredibly funny, but I didn't think that it was particularly funny, and for good reason because she's conducting a basically like large scale psychological warfare on a town of full of people. Um, this show I thought was legitimately amusing. And like, you know, even if it's like bending over backwards to do things by like having their therapist show up and do couples therapy, like <laughs> that scene is still good. And yep. it actually 
ends with a pretty decent note where it's like, you think they're just bullshitting with each other. And then Bucky is like, I'm really more angry because if he was wrong about you, he was wrong about me. And I'm still second guessing whether or not I'm worth saving. And that was just like a cool piece of writing. I, I really enjoyed it. I want to talk about Wyatt Russell though, because uh, this, this, this episode clearly, it, it starts with uh, the story of John Walker. It opens with uh, this character that Wyatt Russell is playing. He's in a uh, locker room um, for a football team. And he is obviously, obviously got a connection to this team. He once played for them or something. And he goes up to one of the nameplates on a locker and he just kind of like longingly touches it. Uh, and then I believe his girlfriend comes in uh, to talk to him. And uh, this scene has no business being memorable <laughs> at all. It is the most like, I just want to do a good job. And it's like, oh, really? Because I bet you're not going to do a good job if I, <laughs> if I know Marvel movies. And... Uh, this is just one of those things that if we could explain it, Sean and I would be rich Hollywood ex executives and we wouldn't be talking about this stuff because if we could just break down the algebra of why Wyatt Russell is a hundred times better than the average person doing that scene, I, I wouldn't be here. But he is. And it's well, like... There's one scientific explanation, which is that he has Kurt Russell's <laughs> blood in him. So yes. that that helps. So it you helps. want a super soldier clone Kurt <laughs> I, Russell? I is do. <laughs> How good would that be? Uh, yeah, I mean, why why Russell has profound charisma, and now after Lodge Forty Nine is like is also a TV veteran, and yeah. so he knows the mode. And I, it's been interesting listening to to Van and um, and Charles talk about this show in particular because I don't I never cared about the Captain America comics at all. I don't know U.S. Agent. I don't know any of this story. Unlike Wandavision, where I did feel like I had a sense of where they like were House going. Like House of M might happen yeah. or whatever. Yeah, I have read a bunch of those books. I have some. I knew about the Vision runs in the past. This is all new to me, and so it's been fun. But it, I totally agree with you. It really helps that Wyatt Russell is again kind of like overqualified for a part like this, and he makes this really neat. Um, he, I'll tell you who he reminds me of. This is probably overstating things given in what high esteem we hold this show, but it's a little bit of Walton Goggins and justified energy mm -hmm. where it's like, is he the villain? But is he also the most interesting character on the show? Is right. he actually a villain? What are like, what kind of ambivalence are we supposed to have towards this character? And I mean, I'm sure that I will only be let down after saying that out loud, but that was a little bit of what he was giving me in this episode. What's your, what's your take on the flag smashers? Like, are are you, are you personally just, you're willing to look at the literature, you know, like that's, <laughs> what's your level of openness? <laughs> um, well, after, after proselytizing for Q into the storm, I, I don't know, know maybe how until I, a dangerous I turn away. time to be like Carly Morgenthau is my, <laughs> well, I think like the idea of an organization that is anti-nationalist is actually broadly good, but I don't know that, um, using I'm not trying to back you into a corner here. It's okay. Well, they're they're colliding a lot of messages, you know. There's like the there anonymous is, yeah. mask. It's like there. Occupy, but it's also yeah, right. Yeah, there's like the show of force in a nonviolent world. I don't totally know what to expect from them. I don't. It's one of the rare cases where I'm like, I wish everyone would just like stop punching each other across trains. Like I could go for some hand to hand combat that isn't like super powered. Yeah. Um. I I think you and I both really like the kind of like on the ground crime shows where if you have a fight, you have a fight. So it's been a little bit disorienting to see what looks like a $2 million action sequence in the middle of a TV show. <laughs> yes. It's uh, just dudes getting thrown around off of trucks and like yeah. landing on shields. Yeah. Yeah. I, and actually as a comparison point to invincible invincible is animated, obviously. So when it has a crazy act, like the characters just fly into space and you're like, mm -hmm. all right, we're in space now because this is an animated show and it can actually do things that you wouldn't even believe even in a CGI world of movies that feels more reasonable and more legible. The one thing that I'm not totally on board with, with, with Falcon and Winter Soldier is that, that like sense of having a superhero movie, but normalizing every action sequence. And now that having to be like the expectation every week is so I think we have to have one of these every week now. Do you think that's for the kids? I, cause I think that the, the older kids, well, okay. So movie is about race in America. I know, I mean, <laughs> but it, and, and Captain America is like, it's the 49-year-old comic book fans who are like, that Captain America is very important to me, right? Like right. most kids grew up and they're just like, I like Iron Man, right? You know, but I think that there's something, I keep trying to, to break down like, you know, 
when they make something and it has in WandaVision like themes themes of grief and loss and like trauma and coping with that that grief, loss, and trauma. Or in this show where it's obviously about loyalty and duty and patriotism, responsibility, and also race and like that stuff is interesting to you and me. And then people punching each other across trucks, is that for 10-year-olds? Is it for the 10-year-old part? Like who's watching that is like, I'm going to run that scene back. That was just great. That was good stuff. When when Agatha and Wanda are just shooting beams at each other in the sky, you know, Roger Deakins couldn't have shot that. You know, like what? If, who's watching that and is like, that's dope? I don't know. I mean, are these Marvel shows Aren't kids more watching like- John Wick? Aren't they being a little bit more dangerous than this? I don't think it's a good idea for you and I to pot about what kids are doing. Um, I just think that we just don't know. They're just vaping I, on TikTok, you know? <laughs> I just, it's, it reminds me of the Pixar conversation. Yeah. You know, where it's like Pixar was making a lot of movies. There were four children, but it had a lot for parents. And then at a certain point, it just seemed like they were making movies for sad parents that their kids could watch. Yes. And I, I can't tell if what stage of that we're in with Marvel. You know, are we in the stage where like this is now fully for 38-year-old me? Right. Or... Is it for 27-year-olds who were 12 when yeah, this, right. these stories started? Right. Or is it for 12-year-olds? I, I genuinely don't know. I don't know either. Are you, are you uh, as the dean of the Brule School, are you excited for, um, for Zebo? Zebo season. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Um, I, only, I hope he plays his character from Rush, though. That's what I'm hoping for, <laughs> is that he's going he's gonna to ditch the Zemo bit. And, uh, or, or he's I want him play- to be the maitre d' from Burnt again. Oh, that would be good. What about Frederick Zoller from uh, Inglorious Bastards? <laughs> yeah. Uh Brule Brule CV is deep. Yeah, sure. I'm excited. It is I think was was it was it Van who suggested that he would be the Hannibal Lecter of I think that's of, the I think he's like gonna help to to find a villain they need a villain kind of thing. Yes, yeah. Yes. Which is interesting. I mean, again, Daniel Brule just wildly overqualified for a three episode stint on Falcon and the Winter Soldier. <laughs> so in that respect, I'm, I'm excited about it. Um, I'll definitely keep watching the show. I'll be honest. I'm probably most looking forward to the what if Marvel show. Okay. That's because that is the, um, That's the rare yeah. unconnected universe mm-hmm. and also will be animated, which I know is not, not ideal for you, but they're going to be able to my favorite TV show of all time, aside from Jeopardy, is the, is the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be their Twilight Zone. Those comics were always the Twilight Zone. So um, I'm fired up for that one. I don't, I don't know. what is there like a Marvel show that you really want? That, that, isn't been plan- that hasn't been planned well, yet? Well, whether it's on the way or something you could see in the future. Because I'm, I'm like kind of wrapping my mind around this being television in a big way for the next five years. Um, I mean, I'm excited for Loki. I, I, I'm, I, I think I'm helping myself help myself by not being like these shows need to be good fellas you know what I mean? like right. I, I don't expect to necessarily have an, a connection to these things as much as i may for my favorite films or some of my favorite shows is there is there a marvel show that hasn't been announced or made yet that i want well chris before no, i mean, answer that let, let me just ask you this i don't know if you know this but people have been asking for good fellas on the rewatchables have they why is it why is it that we haven't done that <laughs> it's because we want to see each other we okay. want to be able to see each other in person okay. to do it. Well, just tell it to the people out there. They're uh, mad at you. Bill can tell them. It's, it's ultimately, we, we, we just show up and stand on our marks. <laughs> Bill, Bill's calling the shots there. Uh, he's he's right, the I'm Jimmy sorry. Conway of this whole thing. Um, you know what I want? And this is sort of weird, but I, I want them to do the real version of my favorite X-Men stories and not fuck them up. So Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix are both like two of my favorite comic book stories ever and they fucked them up and the perfect place to tell those stories with all their depth and all their tragedy would be these long form shows now i don't know whether or not that works for them because by the time they mount x-men x-men is going to have basically the responsibility of the avengers you know like they will that these will have to be the biggest movies in the world so i don't know that they're going to be like let's tell the dark phoenix story on tv but for all i know in five years there, you know, all movie theaters will just be city banks. So, I mean, who, who can say? <laughs> I mean, I agree with you. I think the same way that they, I think it'd be interesting to do it somewhat in the DC model, weirdly, where, um, you know, the, the stand, 
a lot of Stephen King stories, frankly, from the 90s, were these kind of standalone mm-hmm. ABC miniseries, these four, six, eight-part miniseries. And then this CBS All Access actually just remade The Stand, which I've, apparently no one watched. I had zero conversations about it. I mean, I had the misfortune of also coming at the end of CBS All Access and before Paramount+. Plus. Um, so and, that was tough. And also in, during a worldwide plague, which yes, is what may, that story may is about. some fatigue with that, yeah. <laughs> but I could you do the Dark Phoenix saga in an eight-part mega miniseries on Disney Plus and do it in a way that, like, in the way it deserves, you know, in the way that is, like, a little bit more languorous, a little bit more expansive, a little bit more interstellar. Um, I think you can, but I think you probably need a movie or two first to set up the... To, to develop an audience's relationship with the characters. Because well, one of the things... We're, we're back where we started then, yes. which is the movies and TV and what has power, what has provenance. We always return to the source. Sean, thanks so much for, for joining me today. Chris, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm touched. I'm touched that I was asked, honestly. <laughs> you hit me up on Friday and I was like, is this really happening? Am I really going on my favorite show? You can listen to... Uh, me and Sean and Amanda draft the 2016 movie year, which is always a blast uh, on the big picture. And uh, also later in the week, Sean, you're doing uh, Godzilla and King Kong. With yeah, what Chase about Serrano. the rewatchables, Chris? That was a big one. Oh yeah, we did. Uh, we did Thief on the rewatchables. That's coming this week. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, I am a true blue kind of guy, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, thanks so much, man. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Cr. <laughs>